So if you um, would join me in the reading of scripture, if you, those who can stand, who are able, we're going to start in Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I, found, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And now, for 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And then 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Amen. Kathy and Dick, thank you for everything, for being such an encouragement to our church family, to me and Mallory. We're so excited to have Kathy as Director of Women's Ministries as we go forward, so what a blessing today. Thank you.
begin with a few questions, as we usually do. What holds a group of people together? What kind of values and shared vision does it require to have any kind of a cohesive movement among either a nation or a church? Or to ask it a different way, what happens when those common things, those shared visions or shared values begin to erode? What kinds of problems does it create? And I raise those questions only because it's always important for a church to understand the culture in which we find ourselves. How would you describe our cultural moment? Say, so I, as I look out on the landscape, say it's a time of great uh, fracturing, a, great, a time of great division. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it going to be about the church that allows us to bind together under the authority of God moving with a common purpose to glorify him. And just to highlight, again, I think the, we've said this before, but I think we're well beyond the time where we can explain the church to the culture, but it will be increasingly important for us to talk about the culture as a church. Uh, that's where we're at. And so we find ourselves with our culture losing a coherent vision of well-being and purpose. So you think about how dangerous this is. I've got a few ideas. First, William McNeil, a famous historian. Listen to what he says. A people without a full quiver of relevant, agreed-upon statements, accepted in advance through education or less formalized acculturation, soon finds itself in deep trouble. For in the absence of believable myths, coherent public action becomes very difficult to improvise or sustain. And I would say in that quote, the idea of a believable myth, he doesn't mean made-up story, but rather he's talking about myth in the way that C.S. Lewis would use that term. What he's talking about is, is there a common uh, big theme? Is there a place upon which we can plant our feet in agreed-upon, shared vision of the way things are so that we as a church and as a people can move forward in a meaningful way, to move forward with actual action that's going to make a difference? Now, I think there's been, it's widely admitted now that ours is a culture where we have lost this idea of a shared vision of well-being and purpose. Take, for example, recent article in First Things by Russell Berman out of Stanford University, title of the article, State of Emergency, that we find ourselves constantly, the so-called elites declaring states of emergency. Why does McNeil conclude this? Why? Because he says there's deep fracturing and cleavage in the social makeup of our time, that there's no agreed-upon vision of the future. I think maybe more enlightening, Francis Fukuyama, someone know that name, back in the 80s, wrote a famous is, uh, essay called The End of History. And what Fukuyama said, he said, now that we have capitalistic liberal democracy, this uh, way of understanding how we're to all get along, he said, this is the end. Uh, we've self-actualized that this is kind of the pinnacle of where humans can go. How interesting that he's had to write another book. That one's called After the End of History. Why did Fukuyama write that book? Because he says, so, you know, my old thesis of saying we've kind of arrived, it's now eroding from underneath us that the so-called order of capitalistic liberalism, lowercase l, uh, we have lost our confidence in a lot of the institutions in which we've trusted. Now, friends, I happen to think, I know God can do whatever he wants, and I happen to think it's way too late for our culture. It's way too late to have 
a grand enough vision for our culture to move in concert. But it is not too late for the church, and it must not be too late for the church, that we must have this common appreciation for a shared narrative and a shared purpose so that we might, to use McNeil's words, move forward in a meaningful and coherent public action. That is, can we move in a church in such a way that exalts the name of Jesus, that we would be bound together in love and in charity as brothers and sisters and be this counterpoint to a culture that is eroding, that is finding itself in no man's land, so to speak. And that's why I think I wanted to uh, think about how Exodus ends and how this introduction of our cultural moment and us as a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church, how this fits to the end of Exodus. So if you remember what's happening at Exodus 33 and 34, where the first two readings came from, you remember we're coming off the heels of a terrible betrayal. That Exodus 32 is when the Israelites, after their leader disappears for 40 days to get the law in the tabernacle dimensions, they decide to quickly turn their backs on what they've pledged themselves to. They've forgotten who they are as God's people. They craft the golden calf, and we find ourselves asking, is it all going to be wiped out? Is this relationship between God and his people, is it going to make it? And so Moses, as the leader of this movement, in chapter 33, as he's negotiating with God, finds himself in a moment of significant crisis that I don't want to underestimate. Just think about how Moses might have been feeling. He said, well, after all we've witnessed, God's brought us through the waters of the Red Sea. He's established us. He's graciously given us his law. He's told us that he's going to dwell with us in his tabernacle, that I disappear for 40 days, and it's as if... We had no concept or no remembrance of all that God has done for us. Say, what's Moses asking? I must have failed as a leader. I must not have communicated accurately. Is anybody going to make it? Are we all going to be wiped out? Is our nation going to exist? We see a lot of questions, some overlap with the way a Christian might be thinking, right? Are we going to make it? There's such deep problems. And so Moses is in a place of, I could say, real trouble. And I ask you, say, what do we do when we're feeling defeated and in real trouble? You think of all your impulses, you know, the fleshly nature. You know, when I'm in trouble, I scramble for answers or, you know, are we tempted to medicate or, you know, diversion, as Pascal said. You know, all the things we can scramble to. And I want you to notice, you remember nothing else today, 33 in verse 18 perhaps the most audacious prayer in Holy Writ. That when Moses' back is up against the wall, he's talking with God, pleading with God to preserve the people, he utters these words, Lord, show me your glory. That's his prayer. It's a bold prayer. I think our uncertain economics and politics and the hatreds, the bitter factions in our land... We're scrambling everywhere for answers, doing all we can. Is our prayer, Lord, show us your glory? And so Moses pleads this in the moment of crisis. 
Point number two then, to say what then does this mean? What is he asking for? The glory of God can be a tough concept to talk about because we want to do is we start piling up adjectives. You say, well, it's like God's majesty and and we kind of go down that path and uh, see if we can pin it down a bit more. I think we get a lot of help there in verse 19 because God seems to define it for us, doesn't he? Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. It's an interesting phrase. So God seems to say, as he grants this prayer, this bold prayer of Moses, I'm going to reveal to you in a new way, Moses, my good nature, all that I am, all that I am in my fullness as the one who's self-existent, the one who's sustaining everything, the one who's guided you this far. I'm going to reveal all my goodness to you in a very special encounter. We can go a bit further. Look at uh, Bavink in the notes, famous theologian. Bavink would say this, the glory of the Lord is the splendor and brilliance that is inseparably associated with all God's attributes and is self-revelation in nature and grace, the glorious form in which he everywhere appears to his creatures. Bavink would gloss this as saying it's a kind of awareness in appreciation among the faithful those who are gods, uh, that belong to God, that is, uh, an appreciation for God and his fullness and his brilliance and his sufficiency. It is the magnitude of God and the goodness of God that must sustain us in a cultural moment where we have nothing to sustain us. If I can go a bit further, you see, glory in Greek, which is, I think, the way that most of us in English, when we hear the word glory, we, we, we have the Greeks in mind from, you know, Greek uh, myths, you know, Homer and so forth. And we think glory is something really uh, achieved in battle. It's about recognition. It's about something earned. It's about something bold and courageous. That's very much the Greek understanding. But let's think of the Hebrew word, that the Hebrew word for glory is really about weight. It's something that metals can have, actually. It's about heaviness and thickness. And I raise that because if you think about that definition of God's glory, his weightiness and his significance, I could define it in such a way to say it's almost the exact opposite of where we find ourselves in our time. That we have a time of shallowness and fickleness and bickering and being tossed around uh, by social media that we're a shallow people and a weak people and an unmoored people, enter into that equation the weight of God, the firmness and heaviness and truth of our maker. And that's why I love this prayer from Moses. All seems to be up for grabs, We've got a great value inversion from our Christian ethic. What we once would say as Christians is right has now been declared wrong and vice versa. There's no agreed upon facts. There's no coherent vision. There's hatred in our land. What's big enough to guide us and to move us to action? And Moses points us in the right direction. It is the weight. It is the reality of God. And I pause there again to say, let's think too about a common mistake we make when we talk about our glorifying God, which is our chief end. It is the purpose of our lives as the faithful, as members of this church to bring glory to God. But that turn of phrase can lead us to a misunderstanding. And that is that we might somehow add to God's glory. 
So we say, well, I'm to glorify God, then if I don't, do I you know, somehow subtract from who he is? No, we say what we want to say is that God's weightiness, his glory, his brilliance, and his splendor is an attribute of his. It belongs to him. There's nothing you know, puny Austin can do to take God down a notch. That's not the idea here. The idea, rather, is that God's people would reflect his weightiness that we would be increasingly aware of his weightiness, that he and his kindness would allow us to have a greater fullness of his weight in our hearts. That's the idea. So God's glory, show us your glory, stands in contrast to a time where we live where nobody seems to have an idea of what's important and what can bind people together. Now, God graciously grants this prayer, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Moses again, show me your glory, and God says, I will. But notice how he does it, verses 22 and 23, that this phrase, I remember back in Sunday school, really, um, this troubled me a great deal. So what happens? God says, I'll grant your prayer to Moses. I'll show you my glory. But Moses then is protected in a cleft, a cleft of a rock. And then we get the saying that God passes by Moses in such a way where he doesn't reveal uh, his face but rather his hind parts. So you, you have some chuckles in this in Sunday school. Say, so what does this mean that God showed Moses his backside? Well, friends, this is what you call an anthropomorphism. It's a fancy word that all that that means is God, throughout Scripture, will use human terms to help us understand more about him. So God doesn't have a body. God the Father doesn't have a body. He doesn't have an anatomy. He doesn't have a fixity of location, right? He doesn't have male parts, so to speak. God is spirit, we learn. God in the second person of the Trinity came to exist as a male in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But God the Father is spirit. So what does this phrase mean? That God graciously protects Moses from the fullness of his glory. Why? Because no person, we see, can behold the entire glory of God and live that God's too pure and too bright. I think maybe the best analogy for this is, is the sun. Say, nobody looks directly into the sun. You say, you might try for a brief moment to look into the sun, any more even than I would look into these lights here. You can't possibly. You look into the sun and you turn away. It's too bright. But you can see the radiance of the sun to know it's real. That's the image at the end of Exodus 33. God says, I will give you an encounter, Moses that has far surpassed even the previous encounters that Moses has received in the earlier tent of meeting. Remember, Moses has been meeting with God as a man meets with his friend. But God grants this prayer in such a way to authenticate his goodness to the national leader, but shielding Moses from his full glory. Why? Because no person can see that and survive. So why does God grant this prayer, you think? To make it real to the people that God is with them. And you'll notice then the second reading that we have, when Moses comes down from the mountain, what's happening with him? That his face is shining. Again, what does it say? This is kind of bizarre, isn't it? I mean, God, you know, Moses goes up to the mountain. He has this extraordinary encounter with God. He prays the prayer, show me your glory. God grants the prayer. Now Moses comes down and he looks different, but it's temporary. He's got a glow about him. Say, God is showing the people that he's real, that he answers prayer, and that he is among them. 
But Moses, because of how he looks, you'll notice, has to put a veil over his face because the people, the brightness of his face, and they say this is a bit um, you know, intimidating that the man's face is glowing. So Moses has to wear a veil even as he communicates to the people of Israel. Why again? Because the glory of God is too full, it's too rich to be appreciated in mass by Israel at this time. And I end, you ask the question, and we've been in Exodus nine months. Exodus is a grand symphony. I want us to think of it as this incredible piece of music for a minute. You could say, what note? You know, you got the maestro handing, holding up his arms here at the end of chapter 40. And you say, what note does Exodus end on? Say, Exodus ends on a note of God's glory being with the people that the tabernacle has been constructed. We talked about that. It's the intersection of God and his people. The tabernacle's been made, and the glory of the Lord's dwelling in the tabernacle. And you'll notice Exodus ends with a look outward. It's a look out as they're going out on their journey into the promised land. Out they go into the world with God's glory being present among them. That the note that Exodus ends on, the two notes the last two weeks, we could say last week, God responding graciously to sinners. God not taking sin lightly. God is judged, but he responds graciously to sinners and with the promise of his glory dwelling among them. So think of the moves we've made here at the end of Exodus 1. Moses, at the time of great national crisis, when there are more questions than answers, are they going to make it? Is any of this going to work out? Praise the bold prayer that he would see God in his fullness and in his goodness. God grants this prayer, but does this in an interesting way by only partially revealing his glory and only to the national leader. Which brings us to really what this is about and really what all Exodus is about. Because we could say, here we are the people of God. We've gathered once again. We believe in this stuff. Where's the glory? And I think... We know the answer to this, and we get help tremendously from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3, which is an extended commentary from a Jewish man on Exodus 33 and 34. You could say, well, where's the, you know, the national leader now with the shining face? Listen to what Paul would write. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. There's a lot there. So what's he talking about? That's a, a, what's he contrasting here? That Paul's contrasting the ministry of the law in Exodus 33 and 34 with what the believer, you could say the member of Providence Church, has in the Lord Jesus. Why does he call, why does Paul call the law of Moses the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation? Say, I thought God's law is good. God's law is good. But you remember, we've talked about many times studying Exodus. What's the law like? The law is like a mirror. The law shows me who I am. 
So here I am, I'm going through life, I'm not feeling too good, I'm living selfishly, and I pick up God's law, and all of a sudden, what do I read? If I lust, I've been unfaithful to my spouse. If I've been angry, I've offended God and committed murder. Have I honored my parents? No. What about coveting? And all of a sudden, I start to read God's law. It's not God's law that's bad, but what God's law does is say, oh my goodness, I'm in big trouble. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man before God that I stand convicted in his courtroom. I'm full of all these ambitions, unhealthy ambitions and lusts and angers. That's who I am. So the, the law of Exodus becomes a ministry of death, not because it's bad, because it shows me who I am, a fallen sinner. And it points me forward to a greater truth. Notice the ministry of righteousness that comes in Jesus. You see, the law can't give us life the law shows us who we are. But in Jesus, the shed blood of him, that we're covered by his blood and by his righteousness. And that's where the life is. And so what's Paul saying? We all know that the law of Moses came with glory. We just read about that, that Moses' face was shining. He'd met with God. God granted the prayer. Show me your glory. If that ministry of condemnation came with glory, how much more does what God, what God did in Jesus come with glory to the faithful. So the conclusion of this matter is rather striking, that the Israelites could not fully gaze upon the glory of God. Even then, their national leader had to wear a veil. But among the church, for those of us who've surrendered to Christ Jesus as King and Lord, that as we would do that, that his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, would come to indwell, that is, live within each brother and sister in our congregation, so that the weightiness of God, the anchor of what God has done in Jesus, is what unites us towards public action as a church. Friends, I pray that that's true for you today. Say, a lot of times as Christians, we get so caught up in this stuff. We worry way too much about our circumstances and about our economics and our politics. Say, yeah, we're involved in those things. There's often, you know, better choices and worse choices. Of course, we want to make better choices, and we should do so. But the church will never be unmoored because we have the glory of God, his goodness in us, and we must be made more and more aware of a church family as that, uh, of that truth, so we have a coherent vision so that we can honor God in this time. Now, three quick applications, and I know that I have to wind down. First, uh, you'll probably notice, uh, first is a, a caution and then two applications. The caution is that this verse can be abused in certain circles. Maybe you've seen some churches, and what happens is the lights begin to go down low, and the music starts to, you know, be built up in such a way, and the preacher gets uh, really animated, and he prays, show me your glory, and the whole thing's kind of geared towards manufacturing a temporary experience among the people in the church. Say, oh, I've got this kind of temporary, emotional high. Is that what Moses is asking for? He doesn't know if his people are going to make it. He's asking himself about whether he's failed in his calling. He's not saying, God, give me a, a temporary high manufactured by other fallen people. No, what he's praying is, God, may it be that I have a deep awareness and appreciation and a reminder of your goodness and your splendor in a confusing world when I'm tempted to go to and fro. That's what he's praying. 
And you see, friends, we don't want to abuse this verse and make it about an experience, but rather about a deep understanding of who God is in our cultural moment. Now, you're not a Christian here today. Second application point. We're very glad you're here. We always have non-Christians here. And I ask you, you live in the same world I do, all here. How's it going? Well, all getting along just fine and feeling confident about the future and we're all pretty good people and got to think I know that I'm better than other people so I'm going to be okay if today's my... Or maybe you're here today and you're in a tough spot. You're a little bit scared. The relationships close to you are fractured. It's been an imperfect parent, imperfect son or daughter, imperfect colleague. Maybe it's just been the pain of deep loss, as I know some in our congregation have experienced lately. What's going to hold it together? Better educational system? New tax levy? Different administration, perhaps? Pretty shallow. Pretty weightless, if you ask me. Could it be? Could it be that what is going to anchor us in this time is an awareness of the God who made us and that God has spoken in the person of Jesus and that if you surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior, admitting your sin, repent of your sin in the way that you've made a mess of your life and you turn to Christ, that it's there and there only that there's a firm footing for the most intimidating things you'll face. And for those of us who are members, we understand that. We long ago, by God's grace, God, again, has taken the veil off of our eyes. We, too, were blind, say, no, Jesus of Nazareth, good night, I'm doing my own thing. That doesn't feel... And God opened our eyes to his goodness, and the veil came off. So our prayer for the church, then, I draw on an art critic, Leo Steinberg. Steinberg is not a Christian. But Steinberg, when he studied art would talk, he was famous for talking about moreness. He would see the majesty of the painting and just say, I want people to appreciate it more, to see another layer of the brilliance of the art, moreness. And so the prayer for the church is for moreness, for a greater awareness of the weightiness and the anchoring we have in God who's put forth his son Jesus and given us his spirit. The culture may be doing this or that, but the church will not. May our church be about the business of the kingdom, lifting up Jesus, obeying his word, building each other up in love, because that will win the day in a time of mass confusion. I'll pray. Father, thank you very much for this bold prayer of Moses. Lord, I, I pray that we, we'd have God. I don't, I don't often have courage for this prayer. Show us your glory. Make your weight known among your people. Help us to be confident in you in a time where we don't have confidence in our institutions or the people leading us. Well, we're not designed to have confidence out there. We're designed to have confidence in your character. And so, Lord, help us to live for you, to stay straight and on mission, following the Lord Jesus together. Lord, for those here who, again, in a tough place, 
I pray that somehow, in some way, Exodus 33, by your spirit, would penetrate their hearts, and they'd say, you know what, I've scrambled the whole world over, done my own thing, the one place I haven't looked is the significance and truth of the God who made me. Lord, open their eyes today. May they surrender to Christ. May you graft them into a church family, and may this church family move with a cohesive vision provided by you in your word. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.